Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests to continue our ISA series. I'm here with Daniel Pianco of University Ventures and Andy Hall of the San Diego Workforce Partnership. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thrilled to be here. Thanks so much, Eric. Dan, why don't we start with you a bit? You think a lot about the context of the workforce crises uh, in America. Why don't you uh, expound a little bit on your thinking there and how you think ISAs might, uh, might be helpful? Thanks, Eric. We have one of the biggest social problems in this country is how disconnected so many Americans feel from economic security. You know, we have a society where the gig economy has grown, which is wonderful for so many, but it leaves a lot of people without health care, without a sense of career, without a sense of purpose, without a sense of what's next besides the next Uber ride or the next pickup. And the reason for that is because we have this massive chasm between education, where we go to learn, and employment, where we go to work and seek that career. In fact, of the 100 people who start college, so not everybody starts college, right? but of the 100 people who start college, only about 50 graduate, and of those, uh, only about half of those, so about 25% of people who start college, end up graduating and getting a job that they use their college degree for. So this is how we're left with this image of the college graduate diploma in hand working at Starbucks or another you know, gig economy type job. And, and this is really a, a problem because the result is you, you don't have the opportunity. If you don't get a good first job, then you're very likely to never get a good job. So of those people who don't, those 25% who don't get a good first job, you know, these people are about 50% likely five years later to still be underemployed. And then if you're underemployed, the answer from society is go back to school, go back to college where you were unsuccessful. And you know what? If you're unsuccessful once, you're probably not going to be successful again. And and especially when the cost of college has risen so fast and so dramatically, you know, two times the rate of inflation, you're leaving an institution with a lot of debt and a limited number of employment opportunities. And so we've got this disconnect not between what you learn and your job, but also the cost of that education and the ultimate return on that investment. And and that's really at the heart of I think a lot of the you know societal problems we're plagued with today and you know where we think there needs to be new generation of pathways and connectivity that tie the value of education to the ultimate job market. Yeah. And we're going to get into that a bunch. But uh, Andy, why don't you first start by you know, talking about some of the, the current infrastructure we have to address this crisis that Dana just, just outlined, and maybe you describe what a, what a workforce board is. In, in your work. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Eric. And Daniel's certainly right. Uh, here in San Diego, you know, we're a county of you know, about three and a half million people, and our economy is booming. Uh, unemployment is almost below 3% for the first time in almost forever. And businesses tell us the only thing holding them back further, um, or the largest thing holding them back, is is access to skilled talent. At the same time, San Diego and the state of California, um, when adjusted for cost of living, has the highest poverty rate of any any state, almost 20%. So one in five families are living below the poverty line when adjusted for cost of living, even though um, the majority of those families actually have one full-time working adult. So there's just a fundamental disconnect between wages and cost of living and business growth and the opportunities in San Diego. Or in San Diego. So there actually is, as you mentioned, a, a public investment in trying to solve this problem it's called the public workforce system. And we at the San Diego Workforce Partnership, the organization that I'm the chief operating officer of, we're, we're funded in part by the federal government to do some of the work to address this skills gap. And there's 550 or so other workforce boards all across the country. All told, we serve about 25,000 people a year. And over the last 45 years, served hundreds of thousands of people. What we're seeing and what we're struggling to adjust to, which will give us kind of context into the income share agreements as we get into it, is that the public workforce system is kind of fundamentally set up in a transactional way. It was 
the current version of it is uh, there's career centers or one-stop career centers all across the county of San Diego. We operate six of them. And all of the funding and financing from the federal government and the measures and regulations that are attached to it are really built on a concept of a transactional approach to solving the skills that where, you know, someone comes in, we auspiciously, we try to dust up their resume and then send them to some job boards and send them on, on their way. Well, the fundamental disconnect between the jobs that are being created and the skills that people have, that actually doesn't work. Fundamentally, the skills that people are being laid off from, or the jobs that people are being laid off from don't fundamentally connect with the new jobs that are being created. And by and large, and I think there's pockets, and we'll talk about some here shortly, the public infrastructure hasn't caught up with this new reality where we've got to go from, we can't be just transactional, and we've got to be thinking about how do we fundamentally make short and long-term investments in a transformational way to help workers connect with the jobs of the future? Awesome. Going back to some of the problems that you, you both have, have addressed, Daniel, let's start with you. What, what's the big idea with ISAs in terms of how they help solve some of the problems that you outlined or address them? The big idea is that we need to figure out a way to reduce what we call education friction, right? Right now, when someone is misplaced in the job market, the way Andy described, they don't have the skills for the labor force that's moved. They look at college tuition and they see a big number. I mean, could you imagine you're underemployed, you're unhappily employed, and you know there's 7 million unfilled jobs out there and you know that there's a career out there. Yet at the same time, you're faced with the price tag of college, which is, you know, $30,000 for a program or, you know, $1,000 a credit hour. These numbers are insurmountable for most Americans, especially Americans who find themselves on the wrong end of the skills gap in the 21st century. And so what ISAs do is it, it almost acts like an insurance policy. It says to somebody, look, you know, we know the system hasn't worked for you in the past. We're going to say to you, go back to school. And this is in the workforce context, right? Go back to school. If you and, and the income share agreement will pay for you to go back to school. If you do really well, you pay a percentage of your income. If school doesn't work for you or the workforce training doesn't work for you and you graduate and you make less than a certain amount, then you don't owe anything. And this allows someone to take the risk of going back to school. Now, you know, again, just put yourself, it's hard for probably many of the listeners to your podcast to think about what it would be like, you know, you, you, you are working uh, in a low wage job in order to, you know, pay your cell phone bill, to struggle to pay your bills every month. Um, you're not just stopping working. You know, most, uh, most Americans have, you know, if you go back to school, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big work effort. You're not going to be able to do as many Uber shifts. You're not going to be able to do, you know, take care of your kids as much. You're taking, you know, time is such a valuable asset on top of the money that you have to spend. And what ISAs do is they really reduce the education friction. Uh, they say, we're going to insure you against the risk that the ed that education doesn't work. This is one of the biggest investments that someone will make in their lifetime, besides maybe their house or maybe their cars. And to look at that investment and to not be guaranteed a job, right? Imagine you're looking out and you're thinking, I'm going to spend all this money. I'm going to take time away from my family. And at the end of the day, you know, what's the percent likelihood that I'll actually get a job that will allow me to pay this back? And so the income share agreement really reallocates the risk away from the student and towards, uh, towards the university or the person funding the income share agreement. And so it really is a way to dramatically reduce the friction, the what we call the education friction from deciding to take that step to learn, to get the skills necessary for the 21st century economy. Yeah, and, and picking up on what Daniel just said about risk, I mean, if you kind of think about American society over the last 60 or 70 years, there's been kind of a systemic uh, shifting of risk away from corporations, institutions, and even away from government onto the individual and onto the American family, whether it's the decline um, in employer-paid pensions, it's the decline in unions, the increase in lending and, and consumer debt, 
and there's certainly opportunities there, but there's also more and more financial risk that families are bearing, including financing higher education to get good jobs in our society, where you know you used to be able to get a free high school diploma, work really hard, and live a middle class life that increasingly in San Diego is not possible for the vast majority of our residents. And so you're taking on another piece of risk, which is financing your higher education to get the jobs that are driving San Diego's economic growth. But that's just one more piece of risk that we're asking American families um, to take on. And even in, in, in the gig economy and um, contract workers and the changing nature of employment is just one more iteration of how we're kind of like pushing more and more risk onto the worker into the family because employers are going to offer less healthcare and healthcare is now the responsibility of the family. So it's kind of in, in that world with that trend of more and more risk going on to students, the idea of a student only paying if the higher education works for them and fundamentally transforms their earning potential resonates. It really, really resonates with the customers that we serve because they are so used to having to bear all of the risk. To have an institution like the San Diego Workforce Partnership and our partners at UCSD or Purdue or University of Utah or other, the other institutions that are doing this in a responsible way, it really, really resonates with the customers that I've been speaking to. Yeah, notice I use the word customer, right? I mean, this is... And especially when you think about and where ISAs, I think, are the most valuable is where you have a direct return on investment for the program that you're doing. Usually when people want to finance their education, they're going either to the federal government or private lenders with student debt. And, you know, we didn't talk about this, but there's $1.5 trillion of student debt. We hear every day the horror stories of debt. And one of the things we don't talk about enough is that debt, student debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So it's not just the immediate risk. It's, you know, this is, you could, you could end up, you know, I think there are something like a million people defaulting on our loans every year. And I think a hundred thousand of those are uh, over 65. So this is risk effectively or debt that lives with you forever. This is what you're getting. This is their, your, your social security wages are going to be garnished. And, you know, we, you know, some people are talking about free college. I'm not sure that really solves the problem, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not the free college we want. It's the job that gives us the ability to live a lifestyle that, you know, a middle-class lifestyle in a place like San Diego or anywhere in the United States. And you have a bit of a a background with with ISAs, uh, Dana. Can can you uh, outline that? Yeah, so uh, we, you know, we at University Ventures were some of the first to, to, you know, I don't want to say discover ISAs because really ISAs developed uh, conceptually in the 1950s when Milton Friedman, the famous economist, said higher education has such disparate outcomes. And usually when you have disparate outcomes, you fund that with equity. When you know the cash flow you'll receive from an investment, you fund it with debt. But when you don't know what those outcomes are, you have a very wide range of outcomes, then you should fund it with equity. And that's how he theorized that you should start something that he dubbed an income share agreement. I didn't know that when when I went down this path, but uh, I, I actually started my career in the uh, financial institutions group at Goldman Sachs, where I was an investment banker to banks and worked on some student loan stuff. And then after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, raised a small student debt fund. And I kind of then forgot about it because I thought the student debt crisis would be would be fixed through the federalization of the loan program in 2000, you know, through Obamacare in 2007 and eight, and that's a whole separate treatise. Until about seven years later, when the front page of the New York Times, there was this article, you know, and, and if, if something in the education world hits the front page of the New York Times, it's very, it's a very unique experience. And there's an article saying a trillion dollars of student debt. And I said, what happened here to the student debt industry that I, I had been accustomed to? And, and wasn't the federal involvement in student loans supposed to bring down the amount of debt, save everybody money? And what I found was that, that the student debt, the, when we federalized the student debt and we made uh, federal loans so much more available to so many people, what we did was basically open the floodgates. And the debt crisis was a result of uh, this, um, these new programs. And, and I didn't realize, but I was, I was struggling with, okay, we got a trillion dollars of debt. And, and today we've got 1.5 trillion. So this is just in the last four or five years. 
And, and I said, there's got to be a solution to this. And I'm an investor. Sometimes people call me a venture capitalist. And so I, I went around and I started trying to find what is the solution here? What could solve this problem in a sustainable way? And my associate, now partner, Anand Radia, uh, met this company called Vimo Education in 2015 at a, at a conference in, at the University of Pennsylvania, at, at Penn State. And, and there was such a genius in Tonio De Sorrento, the, the, the founding CEO of uh, Vimo. He went back to this concept of income share agreements, and he said he came up with some structural changes to how income share agreements had been postulated and considered in the past. There was an experiment uh, in, in, in uh, the 70s at Yale, um, and there have been a few experiments off and on. I think um, Andrew Lesson of Slow Ventures and some others have all sort of talked about income share agreements. But Tonio, who had been a lawyer to a number of fintech companies, including SoFi, he'd been at Oric, um, he said, hey, I've, got, I've figured out the answer. And the answer is shared risk across a class of people. So like everybody who shows up at the workforce board, at Andy's workforce board, or every senior at Purdue. And I'm going to put in place a cap in terms of the amount you'll pay. So if you take out, you know, $1,000 of ISAs, you'll never pay more than, say, $2,000. And a cap in terms of time, so that you'd never pay for more than, like, say, five years. And then what he also says, and there's got to be a minimum income threshold. And so he kind of recreated an in- what is the modern-day income share agreement. And I said, this is the answer. This concept of an income share agreement, uh, and we led uh, the seed round of Vimo um, a few months later, uh, or actually participated first and then led, led a subsequent round. But what, what is kind of really interesting about what we saw was that Vimo would create a sustainable method for every stakeholder in the system. Because students who de-risk the student education lower their education friction, first of all. Second of all, it would create the right incentive structure for the educational institution, right? If students do really well after graduation, the the cost of their income share agreement would go down. It would allow you to allocate risk and, and schools could keep some element of risk. And then it really worked kind of from a societal perspective because this was a way to get to lower the risk to the federal government by people actually engaging in training programs that would have a high enough return on investment that the income share agreement would make sense. And so we've seen this evolution in the market. And now with, uh, you know, I, I thought when Andy, Andrew Sorkin wrote the front page article in the New York Times about it, uh, we had sort of arrived. But now, you know, we've got a great bipartisan bill in the Senate, um, Marco Rubio, uh, and, and Senator Young on, from the Republican side and Senators Warren and Coons on the Democratic side, where this is really a, you know, this income share agreement has the potential to remake student finance in this country. And so it's a really exciting period of time. And let's double click there. Let's talk about the state of ISAs uh, today. And more so, what are the biggest bottlenecks preventing them from, from taking off or becoming even more mainstream? What, what needs to happen? Uh, the first most important thing is we need a, a legislative framework for what an ISA is. Right, right now, ISAs ha- have been crafted by responsible institutions, as Andy said, like Purdue, like University of Utah, like University of California, San Diego, and, and that is great. But you know, it's really important as you think about the future of this industry that we, we create some guardrails and some consumer protections, and that's, that's why it was important uh, I think that uh, Democrats and Republicans got together and said, you know, this is a really interesting free market experiment, but there need to be guardrails to, to protect consumers. The, the second thing is the evolution of the capital markets, right? Today, and I think we should really talk about the role of philanthropy in that, but let me just start by saying the way you lower the cost of a, a good is to get it to scale. Um, we all know this, and so we need to develop uh, the capital markets at scale that can support this. And I think what's really driving that is you know, income share agreements sort of really originated in the coding bootcamp space. And it's interesting because when ISAs hit the scene, first one co- first a couple coding bootcamps, Make School, App Academy, 
developed income share agreements. And pretty soon it was, if you didn't have an income share agreement, you couldn't run a coding bootcamp because everyone would say, okay, well, where's your ISA? Do you believe in your students, right? Do you believe in your program enough that the return on investment is high enough that, you know, I, I, I should go to your, your school? And so schools started to get ISAs. Once one school got an ISA, everybody needed an ISA. And you got to the situation where if you didn't have an ISA, it meant you uh, weren't really competitive in the market. That's going to start happening at the higher education levels. That's going to happen increasingly in skill development areas like that Andy's focused on. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you show up with your parents in five years, right, and, and the school you're visiting for your college trip doesn't have an ISA, it means that maybe you're not going to get the economic return you want from that education. So ISA has become a real uh, competitive tool for schools in attracting students. So um, I think it's really three things. One is the legislative infrastructure. That's clearly the most important. Two is sort of the capital markets. And three, the, the making, you know, getting uh, universities and more uh, mainstream institutions to start leveraging ISAs in a responsible manner such that it becomes a real way to demonstrate the value of what they're doing to their incoming students. And, and I would just briefly add, I think, I think for, for leaders of different higher education institutions and um, workforce training organizations like ours, I think we're going to continue to offer our core services. And I think ISAs are a really important tool to have to solve really specific problems. And I'll give you a few examples. So there's an application in Colorado with Colorado Mountain College where they're using ISAs um, with a small cohort of DACA recipients who otherwise are not eligible for federal, federal aid in that state. So they're trying to get children of people working in the service industry opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't. For us, we are going to give federal grants to individuals with no requirement to repay through some of our federal funding for um, individuals who are experiencing homelessness, um, individuals coming out of um, the criminal justice system, which we have lots of programming in. Um, and we're going to continue to do that. The specific challenge that we found is, as I mentioned, we serve about 25,000 people a year who are unemployed or have just been laid off and are making a career change. We've traditionally provided training scholarships for 2,500 of, of those 25,000. So someone might have been a construction worker, they were laid off, and we paid a short-term scholarship essentially with some of our federal funding, teach them how to do um, software development, and, and then place them in coding. Well, over the last 10 years, our federal funding for that activity has been increased, decreased by about 50%. Now, out of every five people who need that type of scholarship, we only have federal grant, a federal grant to, to pay for them for every one, one of five people, so 20%. We're turning away four out of the five people who need to upgrade their skills to stay competitive in the labor market. We're just saying, you know what, maybe come back next year and we'll see if we have more money. And for me, kind of overseeing the system, that's just a completely unacceptable answer. I suppose we could also point them to private student loans and to other ways to finance it, but we don't think we don't think that was responsible either. So we were kind of stuck. And in fact, when I reviewed some of our customer satisfaction data, increasingly people who were unsatisfied with the services that they received at our career centers, uh, and about 15% of them were, the majority of them were unsatisfied because they had done all the things that we told them to do. They took a career assessment to understand the growing jobs in San Diego and where they might need to upskill to get those jobs. They identified specific high-quality schools that are on like a pre-approved list that we put together, and they created their career plan, and they were all excited. And then we didn't have money to finance their next step. And that is crushing for the family, for businesses that need this talent. And so we said we have to find another way. And that's when we stumbled on um, – actually, it was an article in Forbes um, from Michael Horn. And he called it uh, a renewable learning fund. And he, he wrote about how theoretically a, a renewable learning fund could transform workforce development for a couple of reasons. One, it would give us an option for those four out of every five people we were turning away to finance their higher education and through some short-term skills training. Two, it would kind of, the more successful we were, the more money we would have to continue to do what we we're doing. And so it would be this virtuous cycle where, you know, loans are not and our federal job training programs are not structured that way. 
And three, it will give us radical visibility into the outcomes of our training investments because through the ISA structure, we as a workforce board would be able to understand the employment outcomes over the three, four, five-year term of the ISA get for specific training providers and those that fall to the bottom of the list on those outcomes over a long period of time, we would no longer finance them. And so it would be a market solution to driving high quality in the higher education, the kind of skills-based training space, which is something sorely needed, especially as, as kind of workforce boards go, because we, ha- we don't have a ton of visibility into some of that performance after a year. So it was incredibly exciting for us to, to use ISAs to solve that specific problem. Um, and I actually wrote Michael back and I said, um, hey, you know that article you wrote in 2016, I think it was, or 17? Uh, we actually raised some money and we, we did it. So thanks. And uh, we're just starting out and we'll see how, it, how the results come in as they're coming in shortly. But it, it is transformational for us solving that specific problem that we had of more and more people need these training investments. And more often than not, we're turning them away and saying, you know, maybe come back next year. Maybe it'll be different. And, and again, that, that's just unacceptable from uh, our standpoint. And so ISA has represented a, a solution to that. If I could jump in there, like, I, I think that what, what Andy and, and is pioneering is a model across the entire educational ecosystem. When you give someone a grant, when you make a donation for a scholarship right now and you say, hey, I'm going to pay for one kid to go to school, that's a one-shot deal. You know, I think about like the Gates Foundation. Bill Gates gave a billion dollars for uh, to, to encourage first-generation people to go to school. And that's great for the people they solved. But after that billion dollars was gone, there was no corpus. There was nothing left. What if he had said, I'm going to give a billion dollars. And if you're unsuccessful, you know what? You know, I, I, I gave you a shot. But if you're successful, you're going to pay back some percentage of your income back into this pool that will create a perpetual uh, endowment for future people from similar backgrounds to go to school. You know, that billion dollars could have been a perpetual endowment to give students from disadvantaged backgrounds a an opportunity at, at either college or workforce development for the next you know, for generations, you know, and instead, you know, I don't think we're going to give scholarship money anymore in five years. Like if we're still doing scholarships the way we've been doing it for the last hundred years or 200 years after five years of this ISA experimentation, shame on us because we're, 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 you know, we're, we're wasting this renewable resource of people's talent and, and the ability of people to give back if they're successful. I, I totally agree, Daniel. And I think and we haven't been calling it ISAs, but there's a lot of examples of ISA, like similar pooled funding that look a lot like ISAs. For example, unions have something called union dues. And when you're on a job, you know, your training is generally free to become an electrician through an apprenticeship model to a journeyman. Um, and then when you get placed on a construction site, you have union dues and a big portion of those union dues actually go back into the training fund for the people coming behind you. And if you're not on a job, you're not paying union dues that particular month. And so it's, you know, it's not that different than this idea of when your training is successful and you are making good money, you pay a portion forward. Another example is, you know, I get called every couple of months for my, I actually went to UC San Diego for my undergraduate degree and I got a lot of value for my education. And so we get calls asking us to give back for a scholarship fund for people coming behind us. And the more value you got out of from your alma mater, the more likely you are to pay back. And so this idea of if the program yields value, you pay something forward is hasn't been called an ISA, but it's not necessarily in the training and higher education training space. It's not a completely foreign concept. Daniel, why don't we, I know you philanthropy is something you think a lot about. Why don't we sort of zoom out and, and, and talk about what you talk about when you talk about innovating on, on philanthropy, uh, you know, the philanthropy and arc of history. And, you know, if we were all billionaires, what would be the biggest leverage points by which we could solve some of the problems you've been outlining? <laughs> Aren't we all billionaires, Eric? I, I thought that was, uh, that was next on the next, next podcast topic. <laughs> philanthropy in the United States is one of our great inventions as a country. And the largest single philanthropic 
grant in history up to that date occurred when a gentleman named Mr. Johns Hopkins donated money to what became the Johns Hopkins University. At the time, it was an unprecedented amount of money. It was about $5 million. And he pioneered research universities in the United States. And the tech barons of the late 19th century, we now call them robber barons in retrospect. The, the tech barons of the 19th century were the people who started America's great research universities. Universities like MIT, Carnegie Mellon University, Stanford University, right? Leland Stanford, Del, uh, Carnegie and Mellon families, uh, University of Chicago with the Rockefeller family. These families came together and created the great universities that, that of the 20th century. And as this generation of tech wealth that is unprecedented or the only precedent that we have for the amount of the concentration of wealth and technology and disruptive technology is, is happening today. And this generation is starting to give away that level of wealth. When they're looking at higher education, they're being remarkably traditional in how they're giving away their wealth. You're looking at people like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and, and not just them, but Ken Langone and other people doing things like funding traditional scholarships, funding traditional institutions that they're, that the last generation of, you know, extremely wealthy, uh, entrepreneurs and leaders in their communities created. And it's actually disappointing, right? The people who uh, are, are so brilliant and have so remade society in, in, in their image, um, aren't doing the creative donations that, um, their predecessors did. And, and actually, you know, I, I mentioned it when I talked about the, 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 the Millennium Scholarship Grant that Bill Gates did, you know, this billion dollars, this amazing amount of largesse. And, and, and so, you know, the giving pledges. And instead of creating something that really had a sustainable impact that really disrupted education, uh, you know, it really was given in a way that, um, was a one shot deal. And, you know, t 20 years from now, no one's going to really remember it except for a few lucky participants. And think of the impact of that versus giving a billion dollars to create a new type of institution, maybe a new type of workforce training that, that instituted the union pay it forward concept to bring people into the 21st century of coding knowledge that Andy just described as an alternative use case for that kind of money. Uh, and, and, you know, we're seeing increasingly, you know, the, the rich in the higher ec uh, education ecosystem getting richer, right? Something like over 50% of donations to higher education are donated to something like uh, 50 schools. That's not what you would think would come out of the, the great, you know, titans of Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I think that as we look at what we can do to, to improve how we give philanthropically, income share agreements, pioneering income share agreements could become an area where uh, you, you redefine um, what it means to give. I mean, uh, Eric Schmidt, I believe, in the, I think it's the Google Foundation, Eric Schmidt. Andy, who's funding your workforce program development? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to, yeah, I was just about to jump in. Um, I think it's, so, I do think philanthropy has an opportunity to to redefine how workforce development certainly works and is more aligned to outcomes versus inputs. And so, the our fund, I should give some specifics here. So, we have a $3.25 million fund, and we're looking to grow it, but right now we have four philanthropic investors uh, who have underwritten the fund. The first that came in was $1.2 million from the Strata Education Network. We got a $1.2 million uh, investment or grant, I should say, from the, Ir the James Irvine Foundation. Uh, and then we had uh, Google.org came in with $450,000. And then an individual philanthropist here in San Diego um, invested $500,000. And so that got us to 3.25. Um, if I'm doing my math right. Uh, and it has really transformed the conversation about how we provide value to our customers. And we serve, again, 25,000 a year and has the potential to have ripple effects all across the country with the 550 workforce boards that we work with. Many of them have reached out, asked what we're doing, how we did it, how we raised the money, how we partnered with UCSD. Um, and currently, uh, we have every dollar that comes back to us less on servicing fees, 
goes back into the fund to pay it forward because none of those investors are looking for any kind of return. Now, our long-term vision is to have about $10 million of philanthropic capital kind of taking first loss with a larger fund of up to $25 million of assets uh, with $15 million being social impact or even commercial investment that uh, you can imagine kind of a tranche capital stack that offers still very friendly terms to consumers uh, while delivering very good returns to um, both social impact and commercial investors. And that will fundamentally transform the way that we create opportunity in San Diego. And so uh, I, I think that would have, as philanthropy digs in with on the skills-based learning side, I think that will have fundamental impacts uh, on how the federal government looks at public workforce investments, focuses it on outcomes, and focuses it on kind of longer-term sustainability. Yeah, we want to diversify our tech workforce, our, our healthcare workforce, you know, across the board. We're, we're facing these issues of diversity, inclusion, financial inclusion. And you just heard someone who's on the front line say, look, $3 million redefined workforce in, in one county. You know, you could, one of these like grants, uh, one of these, you know, donations, these donations being made to traditional universities to like endow a school would fundamentally reshape the, the the landscape of the world of work, and so and, and in a way that's um, evergreen, right? That would forever perpetuate this new model of of paying it forward. And so I think it's really exciting. Yeah, and let me take five minutes, if that's okay, maybe less, and just unpack our program a little bit more. So what what that has done, that philanthropic investment has done, is it it has uh, it's going to fund the coursework for 500 individuals over the next three years to get into tech careers. And we have partnered, our training partner is UC San Diego Extension. And the four programs that we're focusing on to start with are digital marketing, business intelligence, Java programming, and front-end web design. Under We are the counterparty to the ISA. We're originating the ISA as a 501c3 nonprofit. And then once folks have passed the competency assessment to get into the course at UCSD, we then have a performance-based subcontract with UCSD that aligns their payments with the same kind of incentive structure that the ISA has, meaning that they don't get paid in full until the student's successful. The face value of the ISA for us is $6,500, and that includes both nine to 12 month certificate programs at UCSD, depending on the program, as well as what we do best, which is job placement and wraparound support. So we have a career coach dedicated to every single one of the students that helps them land internships and jobs, but also helps them access transportation, childcare, uh, food stamps vouchers if they need nutritional assistance, helps them with housing because some of the individuals are housing insecure. And the terms of the ISA are five to 8% is the um, income share for between um, 36 and 48 months, depends on the program. And we have a minimum income threshold of $40,000, meaning that if someone's not coming out of the program making $40,000, they have no obligation. Um, and so those terms are, we think, will both create a lot of value for the fund and also are very consumer friendly for, our, for the customers that we serve. And to double down on what Daniel just said about access and inclusion, our cohort of students, the first 50 have started. We had 450 applications for these 50 slots with very little marketing. And so, like I said before, this idea that students are not being asked to take all the financial risks for their upskilling really resonates. That's what I mean. We sent a, one or two emails out to our network of individuals who have been unemployed in San Diego County over the last year. Um, and 450 people signed up and took the assessments. We have kind of gone through the selection process. And the individuals in these technology programs in cohort one are not the typical students that UCSD extension professors get. They usually get kind of white collar workers who are already in jobs at some of our large tech companies here who their employer is paying for them to get this or that certificate so they can go from making 100,000 to 120,000. But our cohort is a completely different demographic for the students or for the UCSD professors. They have all passed the same competency assessment. That means that they can be successful in the program. And so we're, we've underwritten the ISAs, not on pedagogy, where someone went to school, or maybe a better way to say it with our the folks we serve, 
where someone could afford to go to school, but actually, can they do the job and can they be successful in the role? So that's what we're, we've kind of underwritten our ISAs on competency. And then uh, the students that are in the cohort are 70% um, people of color. We have about 50, 50 um, women and men. About 35 of the individuals are on CalFresh, or formerly known as food stamps. Um, and about 65% qualify. So that's something we'll be doing is getting folks signed up so that they um, have you know food. And, uh, and some are working. Uh, many are not. But the course was designed around kind of someone working in kind of retail or the tourism industry, which is big in San Diego. And we actually have a few folks with master's degrees, a couple bachelor's degrees. Um, the majority have kind of some college who are in the program. And like I said, kind of with this network of wraparound support, we'll be having kind of regular hosted events that kind of correspond with the coursework to build a sense of social capital. Because one thing that we know from our research, folk, these folks can do the classroom work. They've shown that through their competency assessment. They haven't accessed some of these jobs, not because of competency, but because of lack of opportunity and lack of social capital. So the opportunity is financed by the ISA. And then what we do is we're connecting them with the business and the corporate network to kind of be the country club for people who don't have country clubs and to connect them with hiring managers and businesses and get them informational interviews and that kind of thing, which, uh, as all of us know, are, are sometimes just as important to landing that job than whether or not you can pass the test. So that's kind of how our ISA is structured. And um, I, I left off a few details here and there, but overall, that's that's the kind of what we've built. And um, that was all underwritten by philanthropy. I will say kind of our, we have a few areas where we want to look in the forward where we think ISAs play a role. One is with new Americans. So San Diego has a lot of both refugees, but also just traditional immigrants. And, and one story, there's a, a woman who came to our center who was a nurse in Mexico. And San Diego is, has a huge shortage for bilingual Spanish-speaking nurses. Um, and they pay a lot of money, but it takes some time and about $9,000 to get your credentials to translate. Um, but if you're here newly from Mexico, you, you, you don't have $9,000 in your pocket, perhaps, and so this person's in it. And so how do you finance that credential translation process, which takes some classes and to get the some, do some paperwork with the state? We think an ISA has some potential there. Secondly, I mentioned, I mentioned the union area. Third, I think there's drone aviation is a big area of growth in San Diego, but there's no courses that really teach drone aviation. Um, and so working with some drone businesses around ISAing, some on-the-job training slash apprenticeship program is another frontier. And then certainly healthcare, I, I mentioned briefly, but um, all of the other healthcare areas that we're, we're hurting for is an area of feasibility for us going forward. So yeah, I, philanthropy has catalyzed all that activity and, and I think we can do more. One thing you mentioned earlier, Daniel, you double-clicked on was this idea of, of the customer. Uh, and, you know, I was watching this um, the disp- deposition between or the conversation between uh, AOC and David Marcus about uh, Libra yesterday. And one thing AOC asked uh, David Marcus, which is, you know, should currency be a public good? And David Marcus basically avoided the avoided the question. How do you think about it in the context of I guess high, higher education or just education broadly, you know, at the higher level, the, the sort of private public like should the students be the customer? And if so, what, what are the implications of that? So I think there's a big difference, first of all, between workforce development and, and sort of education uh, uh, from the Latin educare to lead out of darkness. But you know, I, I, let's just, I, I think that historically, we considered higher education a public good. And if you look at the history of higher education in the United States, it really started in a modern sense with the Morrell Land Grant Act, where literally the government gave land to start the state university systems. And state governments have been funding education uh, for a very long time, hundreds of years, with the explicit understanding that they would create economic development. And that's really what's happening today where the justification for education is economic development. But at the same time, states are cutting back on their funding because they're not quite getting what they're asking for. They're getting political problems, you know, depending on you know, what side of the political spectrum you're on. And, and the reality is education is both. It's both a public good, 
but also something people pay for. Um, and as states are pulling back from their funding, as the federal government is transitioning its funding from grants and direct subsidy to loans uh, that are ultimately paid back, hopefully, uh, or expect to be paid back by the consumer, you're switching from a public good to a private. And when you make that transition, it's filled with the types of debates you're hearing today. And I think it's terribly irresponsible, although understandable, uh, in light of the situation that you have, you know, basically a lot of members of Congress and, and senators and, and even other political leaders sort of attacking universities uh, on, on political grounds. But at the end of the day, what's where people have, have decided to fund universities is for economic development. And so there is this belief that it should be a public good. But the reality is we fund it like a private good. And so the debate actually happened. We decided to defund universities, right? The University of Alaska just had a 43% haircut in their funding. Most state universities had 50, 60% funding cuts. Arizona, you know, the San Diego Workforce Board, Andy just walked through you know, 20% funding levels from where it was. So we've made the decision by our funding priorities that we're going to transition this to be a private good. We absolutely have to figure out a mechanism to fund that that isn't student debt, that is just totally disconnected from outcomes. We need to transition to a, 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 a type of funding that looks a lot more like an, an income share agreement where we have a sense of what the outcomes are and those outcomes are tied to actual economic results because that's why people are really going to school. And I think, you know, businesses, and we just saw Amazon invest how many millions 700 million, or at least announced their investment of lots of money for about 100,000 of their employees or so around upskilling. I think I'll, I'll just speak for you know the public workforce system. If we don't adapt and create value for every dollar, like really align our services to value for customers, I would imagine if I was a corporate leader, I would begin taking big steps like Amazon just announced to work around the public upskilling system. And I think there's a way for those two things to work together. But then if the corporate, if the if corporate leaders continue to like more and more work around the public workforce system, I think we're going to continue to see, and the education system, we're going to continue to see people being left behind because those who um, have will continue to have more who are already connected to these investments and to those who aren't will continue to fall further behind um, and we'll just accelerate this trend towards kind of a low-skilled, stuck underclass without much economic mobility for them. And what's more troubling to me increasingly is for their children. So I, I do think there can be a both conversation in there. And I think, but I think what's critical is that since Daniel, as Daniel mentioned, like if we've decided that this is, we're treating this as a private good, then the services have to be aligned towards outcomes. And we need some guardrails kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation around consumer protection, access, and inclusion. The most interesting piece to this debate is you have university professors and presidents saying, you know, we don't want to train people for jobs. And the reaction to that is going to be Amazon, where Amazon says, you know what, guys? I'm going to take this over and I'm going to train people for jobs because that's, and so the universities are going to miss out. And in this debate between public and private good, as I said, the decision's been made because the universities overwhelmingly said, hey, we don't want to do that. And the mistake there is that the funding is going to go away from traditional universities towards these alternative providers. And we think one most interesting thing that's developing right now are sort of intermediaries that are trying to allocate skill and capital between sort of colleges and universities, which are have so many, and workforce boards and people leaving the military, have so much raw talent. And on the other hand, you've got 7 million unfilled jobs. And we think there's going to be a new generation, and, and a lot of what we're funding right now is a new generation of intermediaries between um, the colleges and sort of their amazing talent uh, and their diverse talent but that's not getting placed in the jobs they want to do. We have this chasm between education and employment, you know, and, and, and it's, it's incredibly sad to see, but, 
you know, I think there needs to there needs to develop almost like the apprenticeship model. We're not going to get an apprenticeship model in the U.S. like we have in Europe, but we are going to see, I think, a U.S. equivalent of sort of outsourced apprenticeships to new a new generation of groups that are using income share agreements, employer pay models, you know, working with workforce boards to serve as a, an actual physical plated pathway from education to employment. Peter Thiel has uh, been perhaps one of the most famous, uh, you know, critics of, of higher education. You're calling it a, a bubble. Uh, I guess, well, one, let me ask you, could you outline what you think are his most salient uh, critiques and then uh, how, where do you sympathize or, or not or differ from, from those critiques? Peter, Peter basically says people should drop out of college and college is worthless. And, and I think, you know, when, you, when you're in these rooms of think tanks and policy discussions and investors, everybody went to Stanford. It, and, and everybody, you know, most people, unfortunately, and this is a, a subject for a different podcast, I'm sure you're going to run one day, Eric. Unfortunately, you know, economic mobility is not what we would like it to be in this country. And regardless of whether, you know, there are very, 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 very few Bill Gateses and Peter Thiels and these amazing people out there, and I'm not one of them. And for the vast majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people, getting a college degree is probably the single best investment they will ever make in their life. And so I think it's irresponsible overall to say, you know, don't go to school, drop out. Conversely, he's on to something in that, you know, schools aren't doing what they're saying they're going to do, right? Remember we said only 25% of people are getting a good outcome from going to school and 75% are not. And so, you know, we really need to take a more nuanced look at, and, and I think the income share agreements start allocating risk better, right? Because you start saying, okay, this school has a better outcome because they're able to offer a cheaper ISA or they're able to show better job outcomes. And, and, and that's the stuff that Andy's talking about from a workforce perspective. And so we need to do a much better, more nuanced job of giving people better information to make better decisions where the return on their investment is, is really high in certain programs and less so in others. And so I think, you know, where, where the, the teal doctrine sort of works is for this like 0.0001% of people who are autodidacts and Bill Gates and, you know, figure out how to code Python on their own. But for the rest of us mere mortals, you know, higher education is generally a good thing. And, and we should be focused more on sort of making the system work with more faster and cheaper pathways to employment than sort of blowing up the system. I have such a personal conflict because, you know, we preach these middle skill jobs, we as an organization, and we do the research and there's really good jobs being a welder and, you know, being uh, a nurse and like these jobs that don't require a four year degree that pay really well and you can skip the debt. But I'm about to become a father. My wife's due in a couple of uh, about a month now. And we're going to, we're going to name our daughter Hadley. And when Hadley grows up, like I, unless something changes, like I'm going to say, like, you know, you're going to a four year school. Like, and so like, even on a very personal level, like I'm in this profession, but I still have a mindset of like, yeah, but like a four year school is the best. And I think where I'm, I'm arriving to is like, you know, the Stanford's and the Harvard's and those are one thing, like you're buying into a network and, and that buying into that network is I understand without even looking at the data, like seems to be paying off for a lot of people. But for most schools, like, I think it will work, and I think it still is probably the best investment in both of yourself and your future career, if you know upfront kind of what you're trying to get out of it, and you're walking into the, the the decision point about how you're financing it and where you're going with some a little eye, some eyes wide open about what your strengths, your interests, your values are, and how those strengths, interests, and values. Um, kind of line up to career options in your area or an area you'd like to move and how that school can get you there and at what cost. I mean, right now, I just think about my own experience. I didn't have any of those things squared away. And I signed up for for UC San Diego and, and it was a great choice and I never go back. And I had no idea what I was doing and what the co- and what I was going to be paying through student loans. And so it's such a conflicting conversation for so many of us personally, but I think the answer is probably somewhere in between. Like, how do we prepare young people growing up 
to really get squared away on their strengths, interests, and values and where they want to go before signing on the dotted line that, that locks them into perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt where the school is not necessarily, the school that they've selected gets that money no matter what outcomes the student has before, during, or after their education experience. Why doesn't Harvard or Stanford or accept 5x more, 10x more students? What are the limitations on that, given it's such a great experience for people who go to such great great school? Oh, come on. If they did that, they wouldn't be elite anymore. And then you wouldn't want to send your kids there because it's not elite. <laughs> Don't you know anything about elitism? And, and uh, <laughs> this is Silicon Valley. This is a podcast. Everybody wants to be elite. If you let everybody in, what are we going to do? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and, and look. To be clear, though, right, the university is a sacred institution in our society as a whole. Besides the Catholic Church, the university is the second oldest institution we have as a culture and as a society. The first university was founded in 1088. You, know, you have the great Eastern universities, the first Western university was founded in 1088 in Bologna. That's the first model. You have these great, um, you know, academic traditions. They're different, but they evolved around the world, almost every great society around the world has sort of like an academic tradition. And there's something amazing about that. Up until about 75 years ago, though, 80 years ago, you only like 1% of the population went to universities. We've done this amazing thing. We've expanded access to higher education to millions of people, expanded to 30, 40% of the population. But Maybe there's sort of a median point where, yes, you know, for people who are ready to go through higher education, they're going to it. But for a lot of people, the better option is to take a faster, cheaper pathway to an actual job and then start thinking about lifelong learning. And, and you know, OK, you know, I, I worked for 15 years on the Cisco router to Q4353 and now it's out of service. I'm going to go back to the workforce board. I'm going to learn, upgrade my skills to cloud computing, and I'm going to get a job, at, you know, being a Amazon, you know, DevOps guy. I mean, you know, so the, the rate of technological change is, is, is accelerating for what, what we would call a blue collar or even, you know, halfway between or even white collar experience. You need skills today. I mean, this is the underlying fact that we haven't talked about yet. In order to get a job today, you need skills. You need to know software packages. You need to know things that you didn't need to know 30 years ago for a job. And universities aren't set up to do that. Universities are set up to educate. They're not set up to teach people software packages. 30 years ago, to get a job as a salesperson, you went up, showed up, said, hey, I can sell you something. And, and a company would train you to sell. To sell. Today, if you don't know Salesforce.com, you can't get a job as a salesperson. It's like the sine qua non. It's like, it's like to get that job, you need, and, and there's a whole set of reasons where, you know, you, there are only so many ways you can say, hey, happy personality. At the end of the day, you know, everybody who's hiring for sales positions wants you to know either HubSpot or Salesforce.com. Go to every single college campus. You ask every single university, college, or community college president, are you teaching Salesforce.com? I bet you less than 1% are doing that. Something has to develop that at scale will train millions of people in this country on salesforce.com. There are 300,000 open Salesforce positions today. That pathway to employment needs to exist. We need to figure out how to do it. And the best financing mechanism to do that is an income share agreement, I believe. Perhaps my last comment, but I think the, the income share agreement on the front, I think someone mentioned, Daniel, I think you mentioned that the student loan decision is probably the biggest piece of debt and their biggest investment that people will make in their life, maybe besides the home that they buy. Although, you know, millennials like me have delayed buying homes because we have so much student debt, but that's another conversation. But we're taking on these loans. We're taking on this debt before we know what we want to do on the other side. And also without any kind of financial literacy training, unless we were one of the lucky few who our parents taught us some things about basic finance, personal finance, and kind of the state, the shocking thing about the student loan crisis is kind of combined with the kind of bankrupt state of our financial literacy. And the thing about ISA is that is both interesting, but also concerns me is that I think ISA offerings need to be paired with some pretty rigorous 
financial coaching and literacy so that people know what they're signing themselves up for, which, by the way, isn't happening with student loans now. So it's not like we're going backwards. But it also forces the conversation about, oh, how much do you think I'll make after I graduate? Oh, what job? That job, leads, this degree leads to these types of jobs that make $55,000 an hour or $55,000 a year. And I'll pay back how much? 7%? Okay, you do some math. And you're actually, if you're an 18-year-old or you know a 25-year-old, you're actually starting to think about personal finance in a different way. And I think that's really, really important before people sign up for what, for many of us, is going to be the biggest liability that we ever take on. And I think the only people doing real personal finance training in, in, across the country systematically is the banks is because they have to. And that's, to me, that's insane. That's like McDonald's teaching nutrition classes. So adding to the student loan crisis, this idea of very little financial literacy and personal finance training is a very scary thing. And in the context of the ISA, it's super important that anyone offering ISAs take it upon themselves from a moral perspective to make sure people know what they're signing themselves up to and force the conversation before they allow people to sign. That's something that we did. And I will just add that it's not something that's happening with student loans. I mean, when I signed up for my student loan, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. I just got into school and people told me that you take out loans to pay for it. And so I did. Warmer sense that you both of your time. This is a good note to end on. My guests have been Daniel Pianco and Andy Hall. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 